Hey everyone, and welcome to this week's Scientist Podcast. I hope you're really well. Today, I'm lucky enough to be talking to Dr. Zoe Ayers. Zoe is the co-founder of Academic Voices, a huge advocate of mental health in academia, and a research scientist in the water industry. She's led the 100 Voices campaign and sits on the Wellbeing and Diversity Committee. Zoe, thanks so much for joining me. Oh, thank you ever so much for having me on. I'm really excited to be here today. First things first, how are you? Yeah, doing well. Just desperate to get through to Christmas now, I think. I think a lot of people are. How about you? Yeah, it's that time of year when it gets grey and the clocks change back. Everyone's kind of on the beach, I think. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. How has it been for you during this quite strange period? I ask, especially with reference to being an academic in this period. So it's been really, it's been interesting. I think transitioning to working from home for a period of time was quite difficult in some ways, but also it's been quite nice for me to like put some energy into developing some new skill sets for myself. For example, I've actually managed to spend some time learning to code, which is something that I never had any time to do before. I can't say I'm brilliant at it now, but it's given me some, some time to build some of my skill sets that are valuable as a scientist. In terms of general well-being and things, I think it's been hard for me. I think I've got a lot of privilege and I've been very lucky that I've got my job and I've been able to still be going into the lab for the latter half of this year. So I think in respect to that, I've been really lucky and I've been really enjoying getting back into the lab and getting back to a bit of normalcy, I think. Right. So the first half of the year you spent working at home? Yes, yeah, so I had a period of like three months where we, we didn't really have any lab time because of the pandemic. And then now we're back in working several days a week. It's been nice to explore the benefits of working from home as well. Working a few days in the lab and then working a few days at home has been quite nice. Okay, so well, you have sort of these two split lives professionally, as far as I see it. You have your sort of professional work as a science researcher, and we'll talk only very briefly about that. And then you have your mental health advocacy. And I'd like if you could sort of just paint the picture for everyone, how you got to where you are and what now represents. I guess in my spare time, I'm a mental health advocate for academia, trying to improve the mental health support and provision in academia itself. And I would love to say that there's been some kind of game plan as to the work that I do. Really, for me, my, my journey with my mental health advocacy started during my PhD where I experienced mental health concerns for the first time. When I was there and I was thinking, gosh, this was a terrible time, I started to reflect on that experience and I thought there are a lot of people out there that are experiencing similar things and that's really driven me to my mental health advocacy work that I do today. There's a version of the stereotypical academic that frames academics as something of a workaholic and or perfectionist. And there's a sense that certain traits, inexhaustible, ability to hyperfocus extremely high standards, are required to succeed professionally. Do academia's quote-unquote requirements lend themselves to academics running into mental health struggles, potentially more so than people in other industries? I think that there are a whole host of environmental factors that add stress onto people's lives within academia. I think that some of those things apply in other industries as well, but I think academia is particularly bad for things like competitiveness between people. I think it's really hard to try and tell someone that you're experiencing mental health concerns if you also feel pitted against that other person and actually don't have the opportunity to speak to them because of that. So I think that academia is difficult in terms of mental health. I also always found it quite interesting that as scientists and as academics, we're kind of at the frontier of research and we're really trying to make the world a better place. And yet we're absolutely rubbish at making it a better place for each other. And so I really feel like it's a bit of a paradox. And I think in more recent years, we're getting better at looking at our own well-being and starting to realise that actually we're not the stereotypical scientist or we're not a robot and we actually need to look after our well-being as well. Yeah, I mean, that is the irony. 
People who are, especially in science, trying to make the world a better place on a whole host of levels, often find it incredibly difficult to get through the day to day in one way because of that competitiveness. I mean, I'm guessing here that the fact that there are so few academic positions going and lots of academics going for them means it must be quite difficult to open up about your mental health if you feel like it's going to, in some way, hamstring you for getting a job. Yeah, I think you've put that perfectly. I think that there's so much fear of the the repercussions for talking out about mental health because in academia, we're constantly saying that we need to be the best of the best. And the way that the stigma is still there around mental health at the moment, sometimes people feel that they can't talk about these things for risk of actually that affecting their future job prospects. And so I think there's a huge amount of work that we need to do to actually make a safe space for people to actually be able to open up about their mental health and get support. And I think if we're serious about diversity and inclusion, we also have to be serious about mental health, because if we're not, then there are a whole host of people there that need support and need an environment that's going to support them that are ultimately going to leave academia entirely and that's exactly what happens and that talent ends up leaving academia entirely and they could be working on the next great big problem in academia and they're happily going to work on the next big problem somewhere else. Yeah, let's pick that up. Let's talk about people leaving academia. A stat that you shared here was 0.45% of PhD students will become a professor, with as little as 3.5% becoming even permanent research staff at university. Now, the issue as far as I see it is this. People in academia, for obvious reasons, put academia on a pedestal. And seeing other jobs as a failure, you know, you sort of fall back into industry, so to speak. Is that something that, in your view, contributes to mental health in an academic space? Yeah, I think that we we often don't highlight what other careers are available to people. And so I've heard myself that, oh, if you go into industry, then you won't be able to be creative like you are here. And hearing that statement from someone who is in academia, who has never been anywhere else, is really interesting because those people don't necessarily have that perspective. And so I think often we hear about other jobs outside of the academy as being failures when in reality they're not. It's just that it's a slightly different track to the academic track that we've kind of been training for our whole lives. And I think there's a responsibility at an institutional level to really train early career researchers and scientists to understand the value of their skill sets outside of the academy as well, so that they can go out and get those jobs and also realise that they can still get a great amount of enjoyment and fulfilment outside of academia itself. Which is hard if your role models are telling you really there aren't any alternatives that allow you to be as creative or as on the cutting edge as right here. For me, I think one of the things that I would absolutely say is like, go out and get more than one mentor. We're so used to thinking, oh, you just have one mentor for your whole career or during your PhD or during your scientific career. And actually having a collection of mentors is really useful because then you can get different perspectives from different jobs and there will be people there that aren't just in academia to give you those perspectives. Yeah. And it's amazing how if you only hear one perspective, it's really easy to put it on the pedestal and that becomes law. And now any divergence of your behavior from that advice becomes really, really scary. Whereas everything is just put into perspective. If you're hearing, well, you could do it this way, but actually that's great too. I think you see it then for what it is, which is just two different people with slightly different value systems trying to help you in the way that they can, which is what worked for them. Absolutely. So just to zoom into PhDs and mental health here, you've spoken a little bit about the challenges that make doing a PhD particularly difficult. I'm thinking here a little bit about presenteeism, a culture of acceptance, et cetera, et cetera. I'd love you to talk a little bit about why a PhD can be particularly challenging. 
you've asked the wrong question here because I could talk about this for way too long. I think with PhD researchers, we're kind of at a point where there's a lot of us that have gone through education, have gone through that education and been highly talented individuals. And we reach PhD level. And what we find is that actually suddenly we're in a room where we might be average and average among brilliant people as well. And I think that that often shocks people and you can't just constantly keep trying to be the best in that environment. I think you end up burning out in that situation and I think as well when we start doing a PhD previously we've not actually experienced failure before when we do our scientific experiments as undergraduates for example those scientific experiments have all been predetermined they're kind of based on theory we know what's going to happen but as soon as we get to PhD level what we find is that you're doing frontier research like no one knows the answer to that and that's not necessarily going to work out in the way that you want it to and you're not going to get the results that you hypothesize because those results are known. And I think that uncertainty can really add complexity to the issue. And if you've spent your whole academic and professional career up into this stage, not only being the smartest person in the room, but extremely productive, and now you find not only can you not do the thing, there isn't any particular guidance on how to do the thing, because you're creating the map the people in the future are going to follow. But as a result, there is no map for you. And then there's the pressure to get it right. For financial and professional reasons, I entirely see how that's a particular pressure for a PhD that you might not get elsewhere. How would you characterize academia's relationship with mental health in the PhD space? Are these concerns that people are aware of? I think that universities in the past have primarily focused on undergraduate mental health and that's entirely understandable because a large portion of the university makeup is undergraduates and I think that more recently people have started to realise that we actually need to support postgraduate mental health as well. So I think there are things being done. I think that there is still a lot more to be done. For example, if you're struggling in your cohort as a PhD student and you're experiencing things like imposter syndrome, it would be really useful for universities to come round and actually think about putting on talks and things about imposter syndrome or having senior members of faculty talking about the fact that they experience imposter syndrome because I assure you they do we just don't talk about it and that kind of normalizes the conversation and makes us feel a bit better in that environment so I think there's a lot of things that we can be doing to improve things in the background for our postgrad students. I mean there's still obviously a significant amount of mental health stigma in academia and I just wanted to know how that stigma sort of manifested in practice. So largely, I think it really manifests as people not talking openly about their mental health for fear of repercussions, as we kind of talked about earlier, but also not actually then training people as well into how to manage people that have mental health concerns. I don't see regular training of PhD supervisors, for example, in order to help those PhD supervisors support their own students. And I think that's something that we could really be looking at. But because we don't talk about it, what we end up doing is not providing that provisional support in and of itself. It's amazing what talking about it does. In the first instance, it takes away the feeling of being alone. And with mental health issues particularly, when you take away the feeling of being alone, you take the teeth out of it. It becomes a really difficult thing, but something that happens and something that people can appreciate and get behind supporting you on. Obviously, there's work to address that stigma. I'm thinking a little bit here about the 100 Voice campaign, and I'd love you to talk a little bit about what that is and how you're involved. The research you produce is only as good as the way you communicate it. Scientist Studio is an exciting science communication company that brings your research to life through a variety of services. From as little as £59, a summary of your work can be narrated, illustrated and animated, leaving you with an engaging video to share with the world. 
If that wasn't enough, as a podcast listener, you can get 10% off any Scientist Studio service using the code PODCAST when you order. Simply head to our website or find us on Twitter to get started. I set up a 100 Voices project in order to work towards breaking the stigma around mental health within academia. And so what I decided to do was to put a call out on Twitter and ask for people to come forward as researchers. And what I wanted them to do was come forward and not only talk about their research, but also talk about their mental health journeys as well. And I kept that mental health journey quite open so people could talk about their mental health journey as they saw fit. And what I ended up having was 100 people come forward who are amazing researchers talking about their mental health openly in a public space and so we went through those 100 researchers over 100 days and I found it incredibly useful as a tool to kind of work towards breaking the stigma around mental health because these amazing people were talking openly about it for the first time. It's really just been like a Twitter campaign to really start working towards having this conversation. I remember when I put the call out on Twitter I (laughs) was recruiting like a load of people that I knew so I was like hey I'm gonna try and do this. Should I call it 20 voices? Should I call it 50 voices and someone was like oh maybe go for 100 and see if you get it and I was just inundated with responses and I think it really highlighted to me there are so many people out there that are willing to talk about their mental health we just have to ask and we just have to listen. And is that the type of thing that would have helped you when you were undergoing mental health difficulties during your PhD? If you could see 100 people who are respected and doing well by all accounts in academia sharing something similar? Yeah, absolutely. I think that one of the reasons that I've ended up leaving academia and moving over to industry has really been that I couldn't see visible role models that were managing to make mental illness and academia work well for them. And so for me, I think having some of these projects where we bring visibility to people doing really well, despite having mental health concerns, would have been really beneficial to me. I want to talk a little bit about inclusivity in academia, because clearly inclusivity and mental well-being are not different concepts. And if you address the latter without addressing the former, you end up with swathes of people in academia having to leave because they're not being taken into account. So have you seen a move in the last of one, three, five years towards inclusivity? Because obviously we operate in echo chambers to some degree. And on Twitter, Twitter's great for academic inclusivity. Loads of people are on Twitter talking about it. But I wonder if this translates to the slightly larger institutions in research and academia. I think that there are changes happening. Again, they're incredibly slow. I like to think the events of this year in terms of the Black Lives Matter, for example, have hopefully started to actually be a bit of a catalyst towards getting universities to actually think more about inclusivity in general. Again, I would like to see action, not words. So I think there are a lot of statements out there that are saying people are supporting causes and maybe not necessarily doing things. So I think that it's going to be really, really important to watch this space in the next few years and see which institutions are doing things in a positive way and and which institutions aren't. I think intersectionality is really, really important when it comes to mental health. So there are going to be people that experience increased mental health concerns if they are experiencing systemic racism or microaggressions or sexual harassment within the workplace. So we've got to think about that as well when we're talking about academic mental health. Really, what we have to do is work towards institutional change and creating better, safer spaces for people within academia as a whole. So George Floyd and Black Lives Matter is one of those things that you would imagine would spark a change in terms of action. But of course, there's a lot of performatism. 
academic institutions like any big institutions in as far as they're really, really good at PR for the most part. And they say the right things on the day and they put a black square on their Instagram when and if appropriate. But whether that translates into more representative boards or improved day-to-day experiences or changed cultures is, as you say, an entirely different topic. Speaking a little bit about the pandemic, I was wanting to know whether you thought there were any upsides, perhaps surprising upsides, in terms of mental health during the pandemic. People have spoken at times about it being a chance to reset, etc. And I wanted to know whether that was at all your experience or the experience of science. In terms of my own well-being, I found it incredibly difficult to start with, I think. So often I would, rather than sitting with my own thoughts, I'd be much happier being at social events and things like that. So I think that for me, the pandemic has been a real opportunity slash forced opportunity for me to actually sit with my own thoughts and be like, okay, well, actually, how am I managing my mental health? How am I going to thrive in this environment? And I've been you know, really privileged that I've managed to find myself a therapist to, to actually help me through part of the pandemic with my own mental health. So ultimately, I think it's been good overall because I've been able to face my demons a little bit. But I don't think I necessarily would have done that if the pandemic hadn't been here. So No, but it's an interesting comment because there's something there that's great, which is, yeah, it made it more difficult. But in making it more difficult, something good came out, which had forced me to confront stuff that otherwise I might not have confronted, which isn't the same as saying it was nice or you would want it again. <laughs> <laughs> But instead is dead on, which is like, I guess, and that is maybe a surprising upside of the pandemic when it comes to mental health. It's uncertain and changes all the time and our normal patterns of behavior and perhaps our normal patterns of escapism. And I don't use the word escapism pejoratively, but practically are disrupted. So it's harder. And I think myself, but lots of people do this. If you're having a tough time, it's just a much, especially if you're having a tough time, in fact, the energy required to go socialize, especially if you can have a drink, is lower than the energy required to go and find a therapist, begin giving the context, working on the problem. And in some way that feels like a more long-term gig. And obviously it's a long-term gig. It's great to do, but in some ways you kind of have to be forced to do by circumstance. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think as well, a lot of the time we can like look around again, during the pandemic is a perfect example of this. We can look around at other people and be like, that person is experiencing a much harder time than I am. And we can almost use that as a justification to actually not go and get help ourselves. And so I guess one of the things that I would probably like to get across today is that anyone's mental health experience is valid. So like if you're not feeling good right now, it doesn't matter if your friend has a worse situation than you, in your opinion, you need to go get help yourself. And I think that's a really important thing. Entirely, especially because situations, superficial situations people find themselves in, often have much less to do with their mental health than you might expect. Going great on paper or going badly on paper, especially in the case of the former, isn't that strong an indication that you're feeling good? There have been plenty of times in my life, but again, I'm sure this is a fairly universal experience, where you kind of get the impression that if you were looking in from the outside, you would think he's doing just fine. But in actual fact, it's harder than that. I want to talk a little bit about the role of community in ensuring the mental well-being of PhD students. Obviously, we've spoken just briefly about the fact that institutions themselves can change to help PhD students, but can PhD students sort of club together more than they do at the moment? And is that something that increasingly we're going to see as we have these conversations more and more? I think that mental health support and provision can be two ways. So I think it can be top down or bottom up. And I think bottom up provision, PhD students supporting PhD students is a really valuable thing. I hope we do see more of that because one, you can often relate more to your peers, but two, if we're helping each other, then hopefully we'll kind of 
reduce some of this competitiveness that exists in order to help each other as well. So I think that's important. There are some great schemes, a mental health first aider scheme that's run in the UK, which enables people to be trained, like PhD students to be trained in mental health support in order to help support their peers. And I think that's really important. Speaking of PhD students and sort of getting on with their work, you've spoken about the overlap between productivity and well-being. And I'd love for you to talk a little bit about why the two overlap, because I think on one level, it's fairly obvious that they do. But on another, we can tend to think of well-being as fun and fun as an opposition to productivity. So I'm really interested in the intersection between productivity and well-being, because if we think about productivity to start with, what does that mean to us as scientists or as academics? So it means output. So it means doing our experiments or getting papers and really to be doing those and being creative in order to do those things we really need to make sure that our brains are sharp and switched on i think there's a tendency to overwork in academia to a point where actually we end up reaching burnout so a point where we can no longer function quite right and we end up really struggling to get the work done and so there's like a portion there where i think we need to look after kind of our base functions so make sure that we're eating well making sure that we're getting exercise and we're getting enough sleep and things like that in order to actually maintain the productivity long term otherwise we are going to start crashing and burning as we go along. Is there any advice you would sort of impart to yourself five years ago um, before you were sort of as far down this journey as you currently are that you think might be useful for other people to hear? To start with I would say that everyone is deserving of help and that it's the right thing to do to go get help and help can look very different for different people but I think if you're struggling and as I said earlier it doesn't have to be struggling to a point of absolute breakdown I think that actually catching some of these things early and getting that help early is really vital as well in the same sense things like therapy for example we often see therapy in the movies as the thing that people are doing when they've absolutely had a mental breakdown well actually Therapy for me, for example, is just maintenance. It's like brushing my hair in the morning. It's making sure that I'm well for a long period of time. And so sometimes for me, I think it's just been a case of reframing what my own well-being maintenance is and what my own self-care looks like. And I wish someone had taught me even five years ago what self-care looks like. And so really just go out and explore what self-care looks like for you. And it doesn't matter if it's painting or just sitting there watching Netflix, which I love to do. But sometimes it's important to just have that break away from our research to come back and do that work really well. It's such a good point. We come in with quite strong opinions, even if we don't realise they're strong opinions, on what counts and for when. So therapy, something for when you've had a total complete breakdown and not before. Netflix, escapism doesn't count as therapy. And these are unhelpful beliefs Mm -hmm. because on top of both of those being incorrect, they make it more difficult to access help that is actually accessible. So in the case of Netflix and switching off, that is a valid form of self-care that most people have access to today. If they're listening to this podcast, they're likely to have access to Netflix, even if they have to nick it off their mates. (laughs) And um, coming in with fairly strong preconceptions, especially on the issue of help, but I'm sure more broadly too, becomes a form of barrier to entry that is totally self-imposed. You know, it's hard enough to get help and have escapes. And quite often, I think we make it difficult for ourselves right off the bat. Zoe, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It was great to have you. I feel like I learned a lot and we'd love to have you back again some other time. Thank you ever so much for having me today.